This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. And welcome to Matt Splain today. He has been... Well, what's the word? Behaving uh, a little bit too professionally uh, lately. So we've asked Matt to search out some more silly stories for this week's Matt Splained. Matt, what have you got for us this week? Yeah, um, because I'm everyone's performing clown. Um, but uh, no, I was going to do another episode on AI this week, uh, specifically AI and the open source movement. But, you know, that's a topic we can come back to next week or the week after. Um, and I know I've also promised a, a lot more shows on Web3 this year. So those mm-hmm. are in the pipeline too. Um, but as you said, you know, maybe this week we should go with something uh, a little bit lighter, uh, a few more of the weird science stories. So first up, uh, we've actually got another story that's been suggested by Richard. Now, if he keeps suggesting stuff to me, we might have to change the name to Rich Splained, which would be a shame because that's not a pun. It doesn't mean anything. Um, But it is uh, a really interesting uh, story. So, you know. I thought it would be churlish to turn it down. Well, thank you for telling me it was a is a really interesting story. I, I feel, you know, honoured that you believe so. Yeah, well, <laughs> even though today's show isn't about AI, this story is about AI. <laughs> um, so Stable Diffusion is uh, another of the text-to-image uh, AI generators, similar to services like Midjourney and Dali that we've talked about a lot on the show. Mm. Now, we haven't spoken so much about Stable Diffusion, um, which is actually to do it you know, quite a disservice. Uh, Stable Diffusion is actually one of the subjects we'll come back to when we talk about open source AI, because it was built on an open source model to begin with. So mm. its tools are free for anyone to integrate uh, into you know, whatever they want to use it for, for commercial and private purposes. And the company makes its money from services that it builds on top of providing these free API keys. Now, I've been playing around with it a little bit this week. I've not done a, a, a deep dive into the command methodology because it's completely different to uh, mid-journey and I can't even keep up with that. But, um, (laughs) you know, by the time we come to to talk about it, I will have a a better idea. But the reason it's come up this week is because a couple of neuroscientists in uh, Osaka have taken that API and they've linked it to their own research. Um, Do you remember what the story was? Do you want to tell everyone the top line and I'll fill in the blanks? Vaguely, uh, basically, I believe what they did was that um, they had individuals observe something, uh, a picture, image, or whatever it was, and took an MRI of uh, or, or some kind of brain scan uh, and then saved that brain scan. And then they fed bits of information from that brain scan into stable diffusion. I've forgotten where I was. Um and spat it. No, no, it's all right. I'll, I'll tell you. I was so, nearly there. He's <laughs> nearly there. No, essentially, what they they did was they took all this data from the MRI scans and they managed That's to input it. it into Stable Diffusion, and Stable Diffusion was able to reinterpret those scans as the images that the people had looked at originally. See exactly what I was saying. Pretty much what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, 
the pair of researchers, uh, Shinji Nishimoto and uh, Yu Takagi, used the API to, as you said, to link uh, their MRI to stable diffusion. So a quick background on how stable diffusion works. So typically when we create an image or a painting, normally we start with you know, a blank canvas, a, a, mm. a white sheet, and we add the elements. Well, stable diffusion kind of does the reverse. Now, this is going to be a very unscientific explanation. Who could have guessed? Um, so basically, it starts with noise. You know, think of the staticky gray dots on an old TV when it's not picking up a signal. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually your starting point. So when someone gives it a text prompt, it goes yep. to all the images it has in its memory. These images don't have to be connected. So you could have uh, a bat and a jar of jam. So it's not looking for an image that has both of those things in. Um, it then, rather than adding the elements, stable diffusion then removes all of the noise until it leaves something that its program suggests mirrors a bat and a jar of jam. You know, that's one of the reasons that people find it so easy to create these weird mashups with these AI image generators. Right. Uh, like I tried to do last week with Richard with Frog's Legs, which Stop I still it. haven't been able to, to do very satisfactorily. Um, now, as you said, uh, there were uh, a bunch of people in the study. There were actually four of them, and they were asked to think about 10,000 images, uh, and that was done inside the MRI, as you said, with the machine recording the brainwave patterns from a specific part of their brain, the early visual cortex. Mm -hmm. So do you think, and is it, um, the first research of its kind? Did no, I find a story for you that was, I didn't, did I? Well, no, there's been a lot of research in this, this area, but... Um, and there have been some recent advances in this type of research, but this is actually one of the least complicated. Now, I know that sounds like maybe a misnomer, <laughs> um, but previous research has required the neural nets to be extensively trained uh, and programmed to interpret the brainwave data, mm -hmm. and it has to be trained on the specific person. So obviously, that's as expensive as it is time-consuming. Where the Osaka research differs is that it's used an off-the-peg AI with minimal tweaking needed. So I think the new scientist described it along the lines of they only had to build a few thousand parameters rather than millions of parameters. So although that's incredibly complicated – it's a lot less complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so to communicate with stable diffusion, to actually interface that brainwave data to the AI, they had to build two modules, uh, one that linked the MRI images to the physical images, and a second that then linked the images to the text prompts. Now, I know that seems a little bit backwards. You go from brain to image to text back to the image. Yeah. Um, but you know, these are the pioneer days of this technology. You know, this is essentially the barbed wire telephone party line stage of uh, <laughs> development. So one of the, the, the nice things about the story was uh, this kind of eureka moment that the new scientist describes. Uh, one of the researchers started the processing and then he had to go to the bathroom. Uh, and then when he came back, he was like, oh, wow, because he was so amazed by what the system was already outputting 
just while he'd been to the loo. Right. Um, so I, I guess that then the question is how accurate uh, were the images and what's the actual potential of this kind of technology? I mean, I, I have a few thoughts, but I'd like to hear yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't want to know yours. Um, so, you know, um, I think we mentioned the the images were kind of very accurate recreations. They were actually accurate about 80% of the time, which mm. is a really good hit rate. Um, they're classed as high resolution, but I think what they mean by high resolution, I think they said it was something like 512 pixels by 512 pixels. So, you know, that's about the same as an Instagram post. So it's not, you know, billboard resolution. Yeah. What I found interesting was that um, images from different people for different things would come out at various levels of clarity. So I don't know what, if any, links there are to, you know, cognitive function, imagination, or, or memory. So those will be kind of interesting to find out as this type of research develops. Yeah. Um, as to the, the, the kind of function, the potential, well, obviously brain computing interfaces, it's a huge area of research right now. Uh, there's enormous amounts of venture capital being poured into all kinds of AI research at the moment, especially this kind of chat botty text to generation mm -hmm. stuff that's going on at the moment. Uh, I read something recently where it was uh, described as this year's Web3, which oh. uh, shows you how fickle funding is and uh, how kind of unmoored from economic reality or, or long-term planning and vision that some of that spending is. Um, but in terms of what it can be used for. Well, obviously, at the moment, not very much. If you have to lie in an MRI, it's a pretty clunky idea. You're not going to get <laughs> very far with, with that. But if we jump a few steps forward and we think about those advances in brain computing interfaces, you know, think about all the things we've been saying about the metaverse. Mm -hmm. Imagine a game where you change the weapon or the objects your character is using or carrying simply by thinking about it, or even changing parts of the design of your digital environment, again, simply by thinking about it. Now, I don't know how feasible that is in terms of delivery. It looks as though it could be likely, uh, could be technically possible, but does it scale to where processors can cope with millions of players reimagining their environments um, and, you know, building their thoughts in real time? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's too early to say exactly where this technology is heading, but certainly I think this research is a breakthrough, at least in terms of the cost and speed of working with brain images, essentially our thoughts and artificial intelligence. Are we jumping away from AI next? Soon, um, but oh. this is kind of a, a linked story, and it's also a trailer for when we talk about open source AI as well. So this is the news that uh, Facebook's answer to um, chat GPT, uh, I think they launched it at the end of Feb, uh, this is the news that it's been leaked onto forums like 4chan, as well as being posted to places like GitHub, and it's available on various torrent sites. Now, Facebook hasn't had a lot of luck with its AI systems recently. Its science-based neural net was pulled after only a few days back in November, after it was found to be insufficiently robust. Uh, Google and Microsoft have also had uh, their issues of late. Uh, the Bing bot has been called a, a, a sociopath. Uh, mm. Google's AI was making uh, incorrect statements uh, during a, a demo a few weeks ago. Um, 
and as we've said before, you know, factual accuracy hasn't been as much of an issue for open AI because, you know, they're, they're a development company. They're not a consumer facing company. Uh, if you go and test out their tools, if you test out chat GPT, you're essentially part of the experiment. Mm. So the new Facebook AI is called Llama uh, because, you know, everyone needs a cute name. So that stands for Large Language Model Meta AI, which is definitely a sign that they came up with the cute name and tried to uh, reverse engineer it to fitting something to the company. Either that or they let the machine come up with the name itself. Uh, It's not a chat GPT clone. The company's clear, uh, keen to make that clear, but it does have uh, similar levels of uh, ability. It's by design a much lighter model. And that makes it cheaper to train and it creates less of an environmental footprint because there's less compute power needed to process each request. Uh, According to one report I read, uh, you could potentially even run it on a decent desktop computer uh, if you were prepared to run it very, very slowly. Um and how or why has the code for the model, and I say this in air quotes, leaked? Well, so last week um, and on many other weeks, we've often railed about uh, AI being, you know, a, a black hole of protected IP, you know, these little black boxes. Mm. So when researchers are given access to these uh, large scale AI tools, they can't you know, they don't normally have any ability to peer inside them. So Mm -hmm. when they demonstrate, you know, various systemic biases, whether it's racial, uh, whatever, it's hard to figure out uh, why they're making uh, those decisions. And then, of course, if you don't understand why it's happening, you can't tweak the data to prevent it happening. It becomes very difficult. So as we mentioned earlier, Systems like Stable Diffusion are open source. You can take the API, you can play around with it. You can, you know, open the box and look inside. Mm -hmm. Facebook wanted to do something similar with Llama. So they've made it kind of semi-open in the sense that academic and other institutions can apply for the code so that they can build their own models. If Facebook agrees that the use cases have merit, they give you access to the API. So it's altruism, but it's altruism to a degree. And it's also a smart business decision because it cuts down on the cost of developing the model. All of these use cases, um, people being given access to the tools, it means they're doing their own work with it. They're bearing their own costs, but still helping to develop the model. So it's a a win-win. So Presumably what's happened here with the leak is that someone at one of those partner organizations took the code and decided to post it publicly, which allows pretty much anyone with the money for uh, the cloud computing grunt it needs to actually build their own version of Llama. Hang on a minute. How, How does this link back to the previous story? You said they were connected. Well, indirectly. So we were talking about the potential use cases for brain image and image to text. Now, suddenly we have this other model that um, that's become, if not legally open source, then open source by default, by default. So all manner of 
developers can take that code and start tinkering with a very powerful AI and start using it to shape uh, the applications and use cases of their dreams. So the, the purpose of last week's show was to demonstrate that, you know, we're on the precipice of this age of artificial intelligence. Mm. These, these tools, not solutions, that will change the way that we live in much the same way that the widespread adoption of internet technologies did two decades ago. And this goes to show that this technology isn't just the future. It's already a growing part of the present. All right, then. Uh, let's take a short break. And when we come back, uh, Keanu Reeves and the Mandalorian save the world. Again. We'll be right back. BFM 89.9. Folk Metal, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt's Plane. I'm Rich Bradbury, of course, uh, on the phone with Matt on video. Uh, Matt, what are we starting with? Come on. Uh, something a little bit more human, I guess. Um, oh, that's not like is, you. No, exactly. Um, this is more of a, a, a note than a story, uh, I guess. Um, if if you've watched the latest episodes of the new season of Disney's The Mandalorian, there are a couple of seemingly new names in the credits. A couple of guys, one called Brendan Wayne and another guy called Latif Crowder. Now, there is sort of an AI component to this story, obviously, um, because, you know, we're so used to sci-fi shows, especially if it's, you know, Star Wars or Marvel or DC or anything like mm. that, being full of green screen shots and CGI. And sometimes we forget that, you know, there are actual actors on the stage, especially when people are wearing, you know, <laughs> costumes and helmets yeah, and things like yeah. that. You know, we just assume that all the stunts that those characters do are CGI too. So Wayne and Crowder are actually the stunt doubles for Pedro Pascal's Mandalorian. So when Mando has his helmet on, as often as not, you're watching Wayne and Crowder on screen rather than Pedro Pascal. Mm. So in previous seasons, their names were kind of relegated way down the credits in a list of, you know, stunt doubles and secondary actors and whatever. So this season actually brings their name, uh, brings their names to the forefront of the credits. Um, yes, I mean, I know it's Pedro Pascal we're paying in air quotes to watch, and it's his voice throughout, but Wayne and Crowder are also the Mandalorian. You know, right. it's their body language. It's their action we're watching. They're part of what makes the show exciting. And it makes a nice change because in the original Star Wars trilogy, there ended up being a lot of bad feeling between uh, a guy called David Prowse and Lucasfilm. Now, Prowse was the guy who actually acted the part of Darth Vader. Yeah. And he felt that his contribution as an actor was diminished because it was James Earl Jones who voiced the character and he was the one who received the credit. So it's good to see the new stewards of the franchise, you know, kind of plotting a different course with this. Uh, so I guess this goes down as my diversity and inclusion story of the week, if 
nothing else. Um, do you want another shorty? Sure. Yeah, why not? Let's keep okay. spitting them out, Matt. Okay, so um, small story, large implications. Uh, this is a, a new update to WhatsApp. Um, now, this is something we've all done. We start a, a, a chat group to introduce someone to someone else, or we put one together for some mm. work or social event or project, and then we forget to delete it. Yes. So our timelines and our histories become littered with all these obsolete groups. So there's a new function coming that would allow you to set an expiration date for these chat groups. So apparently they won't simply you know, disappear in a puff of smoke on the, the day that you set, but you will get a notification asking if you want to delete the group. And unless you're the admin, it won't cause the group itself to self-destruct. You'll simply, you know, make a quiet exit from it. But if my, if I recall correctly, um, you, you, you're not the inbox zero kind of guy. Um, I'm not, um, but uh, I, I do actually clear my uh, unread WhatsApps and Telegrams on a on a regular basis. Um, but I don't normally delete stuff. I am a data hoarder. I do acknowledge mm. that. Uh, so it's unlikely that this is a feature that I'm going to um, make a lot of use of because, um, you know, if I want to exit a group, I do. If it's dormant and I don't think about it anymore, then it isn't doing me any harm. But for people who are obsessed with cleaning up digital clutter, I think this is, you know, a fantastic little uh, addition and uh, tool to roll out. Now, um, I know we're kind of doing weird sciencey stories, but th those last couple of stories haven't necessarily been, you know, weird. Well, not everything's a winner. I mean... <laughs> You know, if we if we did a, a, an entirely I'm expecting all killer, no filler, you know. Well, if I did an entirely serious episode, would anyone want to listen? You know, who's going to tune into Practical Science with Matt Armitage? It sounds like a revision course for people who failed basic science class, classes in school. Um, okay, if you want weird, uh, I've got a question for you. What time is it on the moon? That's an interesting question. Um, what time is it on? I, I'm guessing it depends on which part of the moon you are at. Well, this is the thing. It's one of those things. I mean, your reaction kind of said it all. It's like, uh -huh. I've never really thought I've about it. I've never thought. To, no, exactly. <laughs> Most of us haven't because, you know, we don't think about it because we're not really likely to to go there. We don't mm. know anyone who's, uh, who's currently on the moon uh, mm -hmm. that we might want to get in touch with. But with a number of countries planning to return to the moon and establish long-term bases there, we may actually need something along the lines of a moon standard time. So up until now, um, ah. to... To answer your question, or to answer your comment rather, until now, moon time has usually been assessed as being the time, the local time relating to the country operating the moon mission. So if NASA's sending uh, something to, to the moon, it'll be, you know, Cape Canaveral time that they judge as moon time. Okay. Um, but, you know, the moon is big business again. I didn't realize till I did a bit of background research for this. There were actually 16 lunar launches just in 2022. Wow. Um, from countries including the US, China, Italy, uh, UAE, South Korea, and Japan. Uh, Israel and India, uh, as well as obviously Russia, also have active lunar space programs. 
And an increasing number of these missions are joint or cooperative. Uh, for example, uh, there's a UAE-built rover on board the Japanese mission that's expected to land on the moon in April. Not to mention um, that with all these surface and orbiting missions, you know, uh, I guess airspace is the wrong term, but saying space space just sounds weird. Um, yeah, so weird. The, the, yeah, uh, so th we'll call it airspace. The airspace above the moon is going to become increasingly congested. So a unified time zone or standard could be useful to give everyone the information they need to coordinate efforts more easily. Um, at least that's what the European Space Agency is saying. They're calling for nations to uh, uh, come together and establish a standard. Now, Richard's laughing. The ESA is saying that they're not taking the lead on this. They're not trying to dominate a, a European time for the moon or anything else. They're just saying it's time that countries came together and build some kind of consensus. Uh -huh. I, I'm just imagining all the complications that we see with stuff like daylight saving time and then uh, whether or not we're going to be using inches or whether we're going to be using – it's caused problems in the past is no, all I'm saying. That's very true. I mean, it's not, it's not simple. It, you know, we can't just say um, the moon is now going to be UTC plus eight because exactly. we like Kuala right. Lumpur time. Yeah. Um, one of the bigger issues, I mean, as you mentioned, like different units, uh, one of the bigger issues is actually whether we use lunar time or earth time. So mm -hmm. apparently clocks gain around 56 microseconds a day on the moon. So the duration of the, the day is not exactly the same as it is here on Earth. Now, I know 56 microseconds sounds kind of silly or insignificant, but don't forget the space agencies are also planning for things like manned missions to Mars. So whatever conventions that we come up with for time on the moon should also be applied to other planets as well. Uh, a Martian day is around 37 minutes longer than an Earth day, and a Martian year is, of course, 687 days, almost twice the length of an Earth year. Uh, and as we know from the uh, space documentary series, The Expanse, uh, when <laughs> Earth imposes its own standards on its space colonies, interplanetary war is, you know, the inevitable conclusion. All right, all right. Um so are we are we sticking with space then for the remainder of the show? What are we doing? No, no, we're pivoting to uh, bacteria and, of course, Keanu Reeves. Um, uh, wait, not not two <laughs> things I expected to hear in the same sentence, but you know. Well, um, uh, by the time this is broadcast, I think probably a lot of people will have uh, heard this story already. Uh, researchers at the Leibniz Institute for Natural Product Research and Infection Biology in Germany, another snappy name, have named a group of fungi-destroying bacterial compounds after Keanu Reeves. Uh, now, of course, in our headline-obsessed times, some people will probably have read that headline but not actually looked at the, the whole article. So researchers named the compounds Keanomycins in reference to the actor's role in the John Wick franchise because, huh. yeah, like Wick, Keanomycins are a devastatingly effective killer. Uh, only their target is fungi, um, which if there are any fans of The Last of Us listening, uh, that will probably help them sleep a little bit easier. So <laughs> Keanu Mycins can um, 
destroy fungi that are harmful to both plants and to humans. And they do it by boring holes in the fungi so that they essentially bleed out. Uh, hence the connection to John Wick. Okay. So yeah. we've seen over the, the, the past few decades that many types of infection or plant diseases have developed a tolerance to all the tools we have to fight them. Uh, antibiotics in the case of humans and an animals, pesticides in the case of plants. Because the bacteria, you know, basically just attack and destroy the fungi, the researchers don't think they can evolve any kind of natural defense mechanisms to it. So this opens up the possibility of more environmentally friendly crop production because the Keanumycins would only attack the target fungi and then they'd break down and they wouldn't leave any kind of harmful chemicals in the soil. How can we be sure that these Keanumycins, I, I think Wickmycins might have been a better name, um, <laughs> won't destroy everything that they touch? Um, you know, we take their word for it. No. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, I immediately thought of the movie I Am Legend uh, and the engineered measles virus that right. you know fights cancer but turns you into a bloodthirsty monster without cancer as a result. Um, or of Agent Smith replicating like a virus in the Matrix movies. Mm. Um, and to echo what you said, uh, Reeves' publicist, also said that uh, Keanu thinks they should have been named something like, you know, uh, Wick My Sins rather than named after him, because who wants their name immortalized as a planet killing <laughs> infection? <laughs> you, maybe? Well, not everyone is part of my League of uh, Supervillains WhatsApp group, um, and there's no time expiration date on that one. Um, Let's round off today's episode with uh, a quick one. It's a weird one that can actually save you money. Uh, now, a company in the UK is claiming that it can save households up to £150 a year. That's uh, around uh, 800 ringgit, just under 200 US dollars, by placing a computer server in their home. Now, I know you're probably all thinking, you know, what on earth? That makes no sense. Data centers, of course, have to be kept cool, and millions is spent every year on the energy needed to keep them at the right ambient temperature to allow them to function. And the heat that the servers generate in those plants is just viewed as a waste product, something to be, uh, you know, gotten rid of. Uh, Heater, which is a startup linked to uh, British Gas, a major energy supplier in the UK, wants to turn that relationship upside down to treat the heat as an energy product and do away with the need for cooling. So the UK government is currently funding a trial with 100 homes. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, a shoebox-sized data server is linked to the water tank in the home by uh, heat sinking equipment. The sinks transfer the heat to the water tank where it's absorbed, creating uh, an efficient loop that cools the server and heats the water. So who pays the running costs uh, for the server? Well, Heater monitors the electricity use and reimburses the homeowner for the cost of, you know, plugging the server in and keeping it, uh -huh. keeping it on. Uh, they're also negotiating with ISPs in the UK so that there can be, you know, a, a dedicated kind of port for the server's data so that it doesn't eat into the homeowner's data allocation or 
impede their bandwidth. Right. And the servers themselves are protected against hacking and tampering uh, and would then offer you know, cloud computing power to anyone who needed it, much as you rent uh, servers in, in any cloud. Uh, mm. The example they gave was, you know, architecture firms needing muscle for 3D renders. But, you know, you can imagine all sorts of uh, use cases. If the pilot scheme is successful, Heater intends to ramp it up. So the days of those huge you know, data centers, data farms could actually be numbered. Uh, in the future, Amazon and Google might be paying us for our hot water. Um, although you hope they won't be tracking your data while you're in the shower. Oh, boom, boom. Thank you very much for that, Matt. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, if you miss any part of this show, don't forget you can uh, download the podcast wherever you normally get it from. We recommend the BFM app. It is available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. Or uh, Also, you can subscribe to uh, Matt's Substack newsletter available at culturepop.substack.com. Correct? That's correct. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, he's also got a Twitter account. It is at CultureMap. Also correct? Uh, that's also correct. I don't think I've looked at it for a while. Um <laughs> Yes, I think well, it, it's, it's currently Musk quiet. Yes, um, essentially, if you search for Culture Matt, you'll find him wherever he is. You know, he's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, this has been uh, Matt Splained here on BFM eighty nine point nine, the Business Station. listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.